HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And I wonder what you think of when you think of Iceland. I know many people think of Iceland of beautiful landscapes, ice-capped glaciers, lava fields, Bjork, (laughs) northern lights, and, and maybe Vikings. But do we think of food? I'd venture to say not often. In fact, Food in in Iceland has been, was, in the historic times, quite an issue. One of the historic Icelandic sagas from the 12th century stated that there's a verse in which an immigrant to Iceland bemoans having left behind grain fields for wasteland. We think of ice, we think of barren fields, nothing growing. And for centuries, the food culture was pretty much in survival mode, which brought about resourceful preservation methods. But so much has changed, especially over the last century. And to tell us about the past and the present of these changes in Iceland is the peripatetic culinary writer and consultant, Jody Eddy, who's joining us today by phone from her home in Ireland. Jody's second cookbook, North, the New Nordic Cuisine of Iceland, explores the traditional food producers of Iceland with chef Gunnar Karl Gislason of the restaurant Dill, in Reykjavik. It's been hailed as equal parts recipe book and culinary odyssey. And the book just recently won the Judge's Choice Award from the IACP. Jody, congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you, Linda. And it's About been one of my favorite subjects. Uh-huh. <laughs> well <laughs> as as I as I said in the introduction, the cuisine of the North is has been for a long time rather unknown, and so much has changed. I mean, it's become pretty much a trendy hot topic, too, in the past few years with the likes of René Redzepi and the Mad Symposium in Copenhagen. And, but Iceland, what's happening in Iceland? What's the food scene in Iceland today? Yeah, there's actually an incredible food movement happening in Iceland. And just to give you a little context, I first started traveling there 
about two weeks after their economic collapse. And that was one of the biggest bankruptcies in the history of the world. And so, as you can imagine, the food scene um, was really nothing to write home about <laughs> at that time. And the population, the local population at the time, um, placed almost all of their uh, value on imports. And they really saw food imports as the products that should be esteemed in their culture. And uh, Gunnar, the chef I've worked with for years, he was always using local products and promoting them and promoting the traditions around them. And they really thought he was nuts um, those first few years when he opened Dill, which he did um, right when the economic collapse happened. Not a mm. perfect time to mm. open a new restaurant. Um, and you now it says he kept going until his credit cards burned red. Um, he really <laughs> did it all himself. Um, and it was a very hard time to be a chef in Iceland. A lot of the, the chefs and the restaurants that I profiled during my first visit have since closed because they just keep, keep their pantries filled or their doors open. Um, and a lot of their staff left because they were from other parts of Europe and they couldn't sustain it. Um, and I've traveled there now about 50 times um, since the economic collapse, and it's just been really incredible to watch the food scene there evolve because, of course, what the collapse necessitated was um, the a, a new outlook about what their local products and natural resources were all about, and people started appreciating them. And so at the time when I first visited, they didn't have things like microbreweries or artisan distillers or cheese makers, yet they had all of these amazing natural raw products. They live in a pristine environment. They were just waiting um, for this evolution to happen. And so I have just, it's just been incredible to watch um, the food scene there evolve, to watch people really embrace um, what their local products are about, and to really see um, a new pride that they take in what the environment there is all about and what their natural resources afford them. Right. I mean, that, so that really, I mean, it's astounding that their food culture is really a very modern food culture. I mean, it's... Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and like you mentioned... Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say that their economic collapse, I mean, was epic. Um, what do they call it? Yeah. Crepa or something? That they have a, a word for it, and I forget what it was, but... They have many words for it. <laughs> I'm sure not pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but this is... this. So when they... Um, this was all happening at, at the time with a lot of other Nordic um, cultures were coming into their own as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but let's go back a few steps and talk about where they came from, like way in the past. Um, as I mentioned, there a lot yeah. of people said, well, it was barren fields, nothing could grow here. Why am I here? It was survival yeah. mode cuisine. What about right. that? Yeah, it really was. Um, so Iceland was settled in the 10th century by Norwegian Vikings who stopped by actually Ireland, where I am now, and they um, procured themselves um, Celtic slaves. And so the, those were the first arrivals in Iceland. And that's when their culinary traditions began. And it, like you said, it was all about survival mode. And so what they were doing a lot of was pickling. Um, they used lacto-fermentation. Um, and for a lot of these notorious food products, such as hakaro, which is um, rotten shark, and truly it's, you know, I can't bring myself to like it. I was going to say, isn't isn't <laughs> that one of the most isn't that one of the most hated foods <laughs> by foreigners? It really is. Yes, and it's, putrid it shark. Is what, what what has made um, 
Icelandic food, I think, kind of notorious. But it was all about survival. And when you put it in that context, you really have to give their early ancestors so much credit for um, coming up with these inventive products. And they even have something um, each February. It's called Thorablot. And it's, it's the celebration of all of these traditional um, Icelandic products. And in the countryside and all these country homes, people gather and they bring all of these products to really just remember and kind of honor their ancestors. But um, there were really amazing products that came out of these um, survival traditions, too, things like hardfisker, which is, they call it catfish, but it's actually a wolf fish um, that they dry. They dry the fillets um, in drying houses along the ocean. And because they can't grow a lot of grain there, they eat hardfisker um, spread with butter almost as if you would eat bread. Huh. And it's just an incredible product. And oh, it's so it healthy great. and, you know, gorgeous. And they have a wonderful dairy tradition there. So from that um, skier, um, this re- it's, it tastes like the thickest, richest Greek yogurt you'll ever have. Um, right. That's becoming it's very pop. It's becoming very popular on American shelves as well, the skier. Yes, right. absolutely. Right. Well, now I read something. You talked about this, um, the fish being dry, preserved in the, you know, and uh, hung to dry. And yeah. I read somewhere that they would not, or they didn't have a history of using salt to preserve a lot of the foods because the salt was so expensive. Now, is this, we're talking, I'm, you know, I think I'm going back many centuries when that was spoken of, but um, certainly salt is being used today to, to preserve things, is it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially bacalao, one of you know, salted cod. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of their most important exports, but also a really um, important tradition in Iceland, and it always has been. Salt, it's, it's hard to produce salt in the tradition, in a traditional way that you do it um, in other parts of the world in Iceland because they don't have wood, so they're not able to dehydrate it in that way. And so what they do is use ge- geothermal steam. Um, to create salt. Ah. And one of the most amazing producers that I have met in Iceland, he, his name is Bjorn, and he has a company called Saltberg. And they, Iceland used to be a colony of Denmark. And so in this really remote corner um, of Iceland called the West Fjords, the Danish king once had a salt company, and they were producing salt. Um, and it's this gorgeous, um, it's, it's I think it's better than Malden salt. It's this beautiful, flakes, white, pristine flake salt. And that tradition died when um, Iceland gained their independence. But Bjorn, he was an engineer, but he read about this company that once existed called Saltberg, um, and he decided to quit his job and to start his company. And he said, you know, at first he really thought he might have lost his mind as he's up in the West Fjords in a pitch-dark winter <laughs> of Iceland making salt, um, but it's been amazing, just as it has been for so many of these uh, produce, food producers, to really watch their companies evolve. Um, he now supplies to Noma, he supplies to restaurants all throughout Denmark, Iceland, the rest of Europe, and you can find salt work in every food pantry in Iceland. And so I think for me, his story is one of, even if your tradition has died out, you can return the tradition. And it's a really hopeful, optimistic story. Well, that was it's interesting because that's a question I had for you, that um, this modern cuisine and, and harking back to the, the land and, and all the pristine land and using all the natural resources, 
so what they're basically doing is is sort of recreating all these traditions that were were set centuries ago, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's um, one of my other favorite food producers in, in Iceland. He's a barley farmer. And Iceland had prohibition, beer prohibition, um, until the 1990s. Hmm. And because of this, the barley tradition had really died out in Iceland because that's mainly what they were using barley for was to make beer. And Eugen Zamander, he lives in the east of Iceland on this incredible farm called Valinas. And it's where they still have um, some forests that exist. And he has really single-handedly returned the tradition of barley to the Icelandic people. His wife, she's also incredible. She founded Slow Food in Iceland. And he also, on his farm, he has hundreds of acres and he said people chastised him when he started farming 25 years ago. Because they said, you don't even have any oxygen here. You're, he was at such a high elevation. He said, you know what, I'm going to also build my own forest and create man oxygen. And he really did. Over the last quarter century, he planted over a million birch trees. And so when you go there, <laughs> you feel like you're in maybe one of our national parks in the U.S. Um, and it's just really incredible, the perseverance that he had and... Now you find his a uh, company called Motor Yard, which means Mother Earth, and you can find his products all throughout Iceland. And the people are so proud of his products, and they're proud of their barley. So again, returning the tradition right. to the people. All right. Well, it, I mean, when you see the landscapes, um, beautiful photographs from of the landscapes in, in Iceland, it's amazing that there are these vast, vast tracts of pretty much barren land i mean it's it's a, you know, amazing that yeah. that anything would grow but yet iceland is really not super hot or super cold is it I right, mean, what's exactly the climate what tell it's us on, about the climate um yeah it's it's on the gulf stream so it's actually it's, believe it or not it's still temperate i mean of course you do get massive snowstorms as well but it's not as bitter cold as you would think um and they also, because they have um, geothermal heat and geothermal water um, throughout the entire country, you have geothermal greenhouses. And so that's where they're growing, because, of course, it is a lava landscape. Right. Uh, from, in most of the country, you really can't grow anything on the ground, except for the herbs you know, that do grow, and that's where foraging comes from there, that tradition. But these geothermal greenhouses, um, there are hundreds of them throughout the country, and so that's where they're, they're growing um, a lot of their, their vegetables. And Gunnar, he is really trying to convince these greenhouse owners to really start delving into growing really interesting products and just kind of get away from just, you know, producing root vegetables and tomatoes. And he really wants to kind of make this a, a, an interesting greenhouse culture. And, but, and, of course, because it's 100% sustainable. Um, because they're using geothermal water and geothermal heat. Right. Well, and you mentioned that just herb, herbs would be the only thing that could really grow in that lava terrain. Um, and one <laughs> yeah. of the most popular ones being, of course, the name of, of Gunnar's restaurant, Dill, right? Dill. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. That's the most popular herb. Well, you kind of answered <laughs> yeah. my question, but what, I mean, what really is, um, I mean, the greenhouse has sort of answered the question the who needs a growing season when you have a greenhouse but what really what's the length of their natural growing season if they were to import you know the soil and and, and put a plot of you know a, a box garden out there what is the length yeah. of the growing season 
Well, it's actually um, quite long. Because they have that fairly temperate climate, they are actually, I I don't want to give a specific um, number of months, Mm -hmm. but what Amon there, the barley farmer, has told me is that I really feel like his barley is best in the world. And he said he feels it is too, and we're both biased, but it's because (laughs) of that long growing season. And the plant has to be really robust um, to survive, but because it is growing for such a long period of time, you know, it's, it's being impacted and the flavor intensifies. Um, and so their seasons are, are fairly long. But then, of course, you do have about three months when it's almost complete darkness. Um, so obviously not growing a thing at that point. <laughs> Except you get to go out and look at the beautiful northern lights, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure most people have heard about the fabulous Ice Hotel that was, I think the first one was in Reykjavik, was it not? I don't know. Yeah. But uh, so people think of Iceland as being covered in ice at all times. But in fact, it's, <laughs> in fact, it's not, right? Um, they have a joke. They say that um, when they arrive, because it's actually a really green country, and they call Greenland Greenland because they wanted people to go there, even though it's covered in ice. They didn't want it to come <laughs> to Iceland. And they called Iceland Iceland because it's actually green. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, you know, the, I, there's the, um, the political structure of Iceland is what was something that interested me in reading the history of it and looking as I was reading of course I'm looking for some sort of food tradition I'm looking for you know the culture of food way back when then finding out there really wasn't a culture of food or or even a language for it but um, but that a lot of the fact that there was not an elevated food tradition was largely um, the because of a lack of aristocracy because we know that of course in reading uh, ancient texts old uh, materials that you know it's always we read about the banquets and the buffets of the kings and the courts and yeah. they didn't have that they didn't have that background um, no wealthy local merchants so imp- you know importing yeah. and exporting was not a big thing right um, right exactly and they have the longest running um, government in the history of the world. And it, it used to meet um, in a, there's a really popular tourist route right out of Reykjavik called the Golden Circle. And you know, that's where all the Viking, the Viking heads would come and meet. But it really was a democracy in terms of they would just discuss their issues and um, sort it out. And they only moved, I'm not sure what that date is, um, when they moved to Reykjavik into a covered building. But that was only about a century ago. Um, but it's pretty incredible, and their language too. It's um, an ancient language. They're the only. It's the only language that still has moon um, symbols in it. Hmm. Um, they can still read their Viking sagas because their language hasn't changed, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, um, for people who aren't familiar with um, the sagas, I only learned of them recently as well, um, and they are. Um, what can you can tell us about the saga? These sagas, um, they're from the 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 twelfth and and through the like the 11th to the 14th century, these sagas, right? Um, yeah, yes. And I think for, for us, um, they're, they're myths. Um, but I have had some situations with a few chefs. I was, I was at a dinner, and it happened again after that, another dinner, where we were sitting in a location where one of the saga stories had happened, and I... It was about a giant, um, and I made a little joke about it, and they looked at me, they were horrified, because they 
I'm not saying that all Icelandic people believe in their sagas, but they truly believed in their saga. And um, I said that was, um, it's something to honor and respect. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, certainly, I mean, these, these tales, these medieval tales from, you know, talking about 11th century saga. I mean, they were in large part too um, family histories. I mean, they would, so it was a, it was a way of knowing who was, you know, who was born, what was coming along and uh, not a whole lot of talk about food, but there are some traditions talked about, at least a couple of them that I was able to, um, to research, you know, to, to read about. And, and yet, as I say, that's why I said it was sort of all about survival mode, but um, in, in that survival mode food, let's talk about some of those older traditional dishes. Now, you mentioned the, the putrid the putrid shark or the, or the yeah. fermented shark. The hakarl, hakarl, you say? Hakarl, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then what is, how does svid differ from hakarl? How does what? I'm sorry. Oh, svid. Is svid the shark farmer or is that also a dish? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry if you could clarify. Svid. I don't. I'm. I. I don't know what svid is, and I just read it. I think that was probably a farmer. I think that was a farmer's name that I was reading about. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. What I about the sh- what about, about sheep's that. yeah What about sheep's heads? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all of these they do um, tickles, sheep testicles and brains and tongues and truly anything um, that they needed to sustain themselves <laughs> throughout the winter, it was pickled. And, you know, it is, a lot of it, really hard to stomach. They, they have a tradition on December 23rd, they eat um, fermented skate, which is another thing that for me, I was there for Christmas um, one year, and that was another thing that was very hard for me to stomach. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, you know, they, they also consumed um, whale, puffin, Horses. I think things that um, a lot of us, you know, wouldn't condone eating today. But again, in the context of their environment, they were in survival mode, and this is what surrounded them. Mm. Well, and so now we're, we're some of these things are going back on the plate. Well, not not quite in that form, but at least the the natural resources, the fish. I mean, fishing suddenly then, you know, someone said, hey, we got all this fish, you know, so fishing, <laughs> yeah, the fishing industry became a big business, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of their biggest um, exports, for sure, hmm. um, are fish. And now they, they never had a blue, uh, they're surrounded by blue mussels, but they never had a blue mussel tradition, which I think is really strange because their mussels are incredible. But Gunnar, I mean, I credit him with so much, as he should be, but he really has um, created that tradition in Iceland. He started working with a, a person who was harvesting seaweed and he said, you know, why don't you get me some blue mussels too? And he started putting them on his menu at Dill and now they're on every menu throughout Iceland. And now um, I've been meeting with this food producer for years too and he really can't keep up with demand either. Um, he's exporting now to Spain and France and Copenhagen and um because they, they truly, you know, the environment is pristine, and they don't use pesticides because they don't have a lot of bugs. Um, they don't use growth hormones. All the animals are free range, um, and then the waters are just so clean and pure. So oh. why not? <laughs> yeah, interesting. Well, 
and the book truly is beautiful. I have to say, um, the book and 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 I mentioned that you know it won an award as well. It should have um, North the new Nordic cuisine of Iceland, and um, so in writing this book, you of course are are highlighting all of Gunnar's um, present dishes. So, what is a tourist to expect if one were to go to Iceland today to eat? What would be on the plate? Yeah. Um... Well, I think one thing that I think maybe confuses people about Nordic cuisine is, you know, what what is it? Is it just about Scandinavian recipes? And for me, what Nordic cuisine copies, and I think why it's resonating around the world, is because it's just about um, appreciating the sense of place and not just the ingredients, but the traditions um, as well. And so everything that they're going to find on that plate, um, the foundational elements are traditional food products. Um, but Gunnar, you know, he, he just works wonders. I mean, the things he can do with rutabagas, <laughs> really huh. incredible. And, you know, he does things like um, he, he um, does an amazing like grapeseed oil cake and um, he uses buttermilk a lot. And he um, ferments a lot of his meat products in whey. Um, and he enlivens everything, you know, with really incredible, um, lively herbs, angelica, sorrel, arctic thyme. Um, it's, it's, I always tell him that if I blindfolded myself and ate his food, I would appreciate it as much because the flavor is just so intense. And I think that's what he does so beautifully. Oh, but there cool. are restaurants now throughout Reykjavik, you know, that are really following in his tradition. And so it's a fun place to eat today. I have to say it really wasn't in 2008. <laughs> it was fairly depressing, but now it's a fun place to visit and to eat. Well, it's wonderful that it that their economy came back and that and all of this um, advance and development of food culture has taken place. And I was so glad that you mentioned sense of place because um, when I think of Nordic cuisine, sense of place is is really on my mind. I think of the food yeah. as clean, clean food. Yeah, but, Absolutely. But happy yeah. to hear you say um, very intense flavors. I think that's yeah. that's important for people to separate from, you know, rather than just very fresh natural products, but that, right. you know, bringing the best flavor out of those products. And it's, yeah, really creative ways, you know, to present them. And he does, going back to the rutabaga, he does rutabaga seven ways, you know, and it's just, it's incredible. Yeah, and, and it, it makes you think about what you can do, you know, with your own root vegetables at home and, Right, and um, did we uh, did we lose her? No. Well, I, I'm here. Oh, you're there. Okay, great. Um, I, <laughs> one last question. I have, but if we didn't talk about what about? Um, I know that there are traditional. You mentioned the traditional festivals, and there um, and there's the other one. What is it? The Paramatur? That's the month long celebration of of the um, traditional foods. Yes. Yes. Is blood, okay, and, and is blood pudding still very much in evidence? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and you can still, you know, in grocery stores, they sell hakaro. You can get it in little half-bite containers, and they sell little chunks, and, you know, people still bring it home. And so you can still find some of these traditional products in even just a mainstream grocery store. Hmm. Interesting. That's great. Oh, that's the tradition's <laughs> yeah. not lost. It's good to know the tradition's exactly. not lost. Um, because it's, exactly. it, is, it is kind of a, um, you know, and I, I couldn't figure out initially when... 
Well, I guess it with, in Copenhagen with Noma, when, you know, when suddenly there was all this buzz about Nordic cuisine. And I'm thinking, hmm. I had been to, you know, to Norway and, and yeah. Denmark, and I was wondering, hmm, what's all the buzz about? What's it all about? What's making yeah. it so special? You know, and and then to yeah. hear you describe, you know, how uh, Gunnar has, has really, uh, you know, put this all together so beautifully. It's it, it makes me want to go. I do want to go and oh, try good. the food. Well, I would love to be your guide, so let me know. And I, I certainly will. That's great. And, and again, congratulations on the award for your book, North, oh, you. uh, The New Nordic so Cuisine much. of Iceland. And Jody, again, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and, you uh, and hope, hope that we'll get to see each other soon. All right? You too. And thanks Thank for you listening. So Thank you. Again, you've been listening to A Taste of the Past, and we've been talking with Jody Eddy, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.